Today on Ag News Daily. Said, hey, you know what? Maybe you should be a dealer. Called in and recommended by name. Listeners, welcome back to the January 4th edition, Wednesday here in 2023. Tanner and Delaney here again to bring you some news headlines before we get into a fun conversation towards the end of this episode. Delaney, it's uh, it's not as slick as I was expecting. We stayed, uh, we got just rain yesterday here in central Iowa and a little overnight freeze, but overall we're in good condition. I didn't even realize they were going to get freezing rain, Tanner, so that shows what I know. <laughs> well, if you to listen to my weather update yesterday morning, it did look like uh, portions of Northwest Iowa got almost a quarter inch of ice and made areas very slippery. I actually saw Iowa dairy farmer Dan make a TikTok of him getting his college ice skates out and skating down the gravel road. I like it. That sounds amusing to me. And now I want to watch that TikTok video. <laughs> it was... Uh, something that made me really nervous obviously running a dairy farm that clearly means the milk truck can't show up but that also means that a lot of road surfaces were probably covered like that that's true yes well i suppose certainly don't have it anywhere as bad though compared to a lot of other folks that are still dealing with drought kansas the kansas drought emergency order still remains in effect as the calendar year here flips to 2023 According to a declaration issued by Governor Laura Kelly back in October, there is still the drought declaration in effect covering 105 Kansas counties. Kelly's order was based on a drought map that originally placed 67 counties on emergency status, but now we're up to 105 counties, Tanner, that are still in emergency drought conditions. And it will remain that way until some time. We don't have really an update on when that will pass, but the Kansas Farm Service Agency so far has processed about 7,700 applications for relief totaling more than $45 million so far. Wow, that's a large area of impact. I just quick looked at the forecast for today across the nation. Looks like a friend still up north, Minnesota, eastern Wisconsin are in that winter storm warning with two to four more inches of snow coming. Uh, much of Wisconsin and parts of South Dakota, including northern Iowa, have that ice glaze that was discussed here when we first opened up but then you venture down south to the gulf coast delaney there are severe thunderstorm and flash flood warnings in those areas storms are approaching mississippi alabama and georgia they are potentially going to produce damaging winds and tornadoes so we'll keep an eye out there but i wanted to touch real quick here on an article we shared yesterday around the house speaker vote and they did not arrive at a unanimous decision yesterday on the first day of Congress. The House of Representatives convened on the date designated by the 20th Amendment in the Constitution to stipulate how Congress should start their new sessions. It was a busy day with 222 Republican members, 212 Democrats, and one vacancy looking to elect the House Speaker. The favor the odds looked to favor Republican Kevin McCarthy, but he needed 218 votes with all members present and voting to win the seat and failed in the first two votes. The first and second ballot with 203 votes, so fell 15 short. 
a couple of those tallies went to Republican Andy Briggs of Arizona and Republican Jim Jordan of Ohio. This would be the first time since 1923, if I'm reading this correct, Delaney, that the bidding cycle could go on in 2000 or in 1923. It was not agreed upon until the ninth vote. It looks like if McCarthy, McCarthy continues to fail, some of the other Republicans are stating that they may look to team up with Democrats to elect Republican Fred Upton. He was a congressman. He retired at the end of 2022. But I didn't realize this, Delaney. You can have a House speaker who isn't a sitting member of Congress. I didn't realize that that was oh, a legal process. I did not realize that either. Yeah. So according to an uh, article written here, AgWeb, that put that out, states that uh, if we can't get to a unanimous vote, he could team up together both parties and elect a non-seated Speaker of the House. That is really bizarre. I don't quite, have we ever had that in the past? I was not able to, in the short minutes this morning, research to see if that had ever happened. It looks like if 1923 was the last time they went to extended voting sessions, uh, they still had a seated member. Um, so no, I don't, I don't know, but I can look that up for tomorrow. Yeah, that's super interesting. Didn't realize that. I feel like I always learn new things about our political system because I don't know that they teach you that much during school about it. There's probably a lot of sitting congressmen and, and senators that don't fully know yeah, either. That's probably why that's you have aides, aides and all the assistants to help make sure you get those little details. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, switching tracks here, the global economy is back in full focus for the Iowa or excuse me, for the International Monetary Fund. And for 2023, they're saying it could be a rough year. Warning, it could be a rough year. They said it's certainly going to be, quote, tougher than the year we leave behind, according to the IMF managing director. They said for the first time in 40 years, China's growth in 2022 is likely to be at or below global growth. And this will certainly have an impact on the rest of the economy as China is one of the largest in the world. They said the U.S. is the most resilient and it may be able to avoid a major recession, but they also see the labor market remaining quite strong. So that's a little bit of a mixed blessing they're saying because the labor market is strong and the Fed will likely have to keep interest rates tighter for longer to bring inflation down. Tanner, then when we switch tracks here and look at a few other countries dealing with some of this inflation and major inflation to say that, Germans, Germany's inflation at the consumer level was 9.6% year over year in December. Coming in below NLS expectations, they were expecting to see a 10.7% in December, but uh, this actually was the second month of decline for Germany. And the decline was largely due to falling energy prices, as well as the government paying household energy bills as a one-off stimulus program. That is what Germany took. Whereas we saw uh, in the past, we've seen some different um, programs here in the US when it comes to pumping money into the economy. Germany took a different approach and just went ahead and paid bills for their people for one month of their energy bills. Interesting program there. Would like to read more into that. So I don't have a ton of answers on how that worked, uh, but that was their way to kind of curb inflation here and help with some of the as opposed to pumping money into the economy, that was their solution. So 
it's going to be interesting to see see here how 2023 progresses, but energy prices have eased somewhat in the past month, still up about 25% year over year. Uh, but today's data raises hopes that the European Central Bank will be able to soften its hawkish policies going forward, Tanner. Yeah, I think part of the inflation reduction in Germany comes from their chancellor uh, inaugurating a special floating terminal for LNG. So LNG is liquefied natural gas. And the first shipment arrived from the United States on Tuesday. So part of their wide reaching effort to replace the energy supplies that were originally coming from Russia are now in full swing. So it's good to see that that potentially is going to help reduce some of those living costs for German residents. Germany rushed to find a replacement for those Russian gas supplies after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The facility now in Wilhelm, Wilhelmshaven is one of several such terminals that are being placed in put in place to avert the energy supply shortages. Germany also temporarily redacted old oil and cold fire powered stations and extended life in approvals so that way they could get three nuclear power plants running again through mid-April. So I think those will continue to run. Obviously, environmentalists are trying to uh, fight back on those sides of things. But as reserves in Germany for their gas storage facilities finally got back to above 90%, they are also experiencing unseasonably warm temperatures. So a couple of things working in their favor over there, Delaney, finally getting some resources put back into place as far as natural gas terminals go, as well as Mother Nature working in their favor. Maybe we'll see that inflation rate continue to settle. Well, that's certainly the hope here in 2023, Tanner, to get things stabilized. And sounds like it's certainly trending in that way, at least as of right now. One thing also that's stabling right now, Tanner, has seemed to be Ukraine's efforts to speed up inspections at some of the key ports. Ukraine's efforts to increase exports under the Black Sea deal with Russia are currently focused on securing faster inspection times, according to a senior Ukrainian official. As we have previously reported, there have been hundreds of ships backed up at the ports because they have to be inspected as they are coming into the port with full product, as well as leaving the port, sometimes without any product on board. Um, And so currently they said that they are focusing really heavily right now on creating a normalized inspection process and increasing the speed at the process at the ports that are currently open as opposed to opening new ports. They said, referring to a port that's not currently part of the grain export deal, why open the port of Mikulov if the current rate of exports we can close half of the ports at Odessa, which are already open. So they're really trying to prioritize and focus Tanner on increasing the speed at the current ports that they do have open. Far Ukraine has exported around 7 million tons of ag products since September and October, but shipments fell pretty sharply in December, less than 4 million tons in December. And so really they're saying that it's largely because of these slow inspection times, and that is going to be their top priority here for 2023. Interesting. You know, it's it's one of these news days, Delaney, that just goes really fast without any ads for our listeners today. So I'll jump into my last story before uh, we check to see if you've got anything left. Coming out of Moscow, the Russian President Vladimir Putin made an announcement 
Now, he sent off a frigate on Wednesday towards the Atlantic and Indian Oceans that are now equipped with hypersonic Zarkon missiles. So cruise missiles now that are unique to the world and never been used. These missiles should be able to travel up to nine times the speed of sound. And that will cause extra issues for uh, military defense systems to try and keep up with that. This time, the ship is equipped with the latest hypersonic missile systems, which have no analog data. Putin said, who is engaged in obviously the standoff over his war in Ukraine, he said, I would like to wish the crew on this ship success in its server service of the good motherland. So as uh, spokespeople continue to talk about it, saying this ship is armed with Zircons, Z-I-R-C-O-N-S, that are capable of delivering pinpoint and powerful strikes against enemy at sea and on land. These hypersonic missiles could overcome any missile defense system. The missiles fly at nine times the speed of sound and have a range of over 1,000 kilometers. Russia, China, and the U.S. have been in a hypersonic weapons race because of their speeds. Above five times the speed of sound and maneuverability, such weapons are an edge over any adversary. So hopefully, Delaney, we don't hear any reports of these missiles being fired, but they are now being sent to sea to patrol the Atlantic, I believe, and Indian Ocean. So uh, not great news there for the progress coming out of Russia, but certainly something for us to pay attention to. Well, one final story I've got here that is something we should definitely pay attention to because it could impact domestic poultry prices, but the Czech Republic has an extremely large outbreak of bird flu that was just recently reported. Czech authorities will destroy 750,000 hens on a poultry farm at the center of the state, center of the country, excuse me, which is so far their worst outbreak of bird flu uh, that's spread here. The bird flu was first detected on a farm last week, located about 90 miles west from Prague in one of its three halls. And authorities on Tuesday said that they began preparations to cull up to 220,000 birds. Now another farm is reporting this 750,000 hen destruction that will happen this week. And the Czech Republic's state veterinary administration said on Wednesday that a further spread on the farm had led its decision to cull all the birds there. And that, of course, that's not great news for the farm, but they are continuing to watch it on high alert and warn uh, Czech citizens to be really diligent about biosecurity and focusing on not spreading the disease uh, any further at any other farm Tanner. So still continuing to see a lot of headlines about it. Yeah, that's not good news, but certainly something, again, for us to watch. Hopefully, as the migrant birds here in the U.S. get south and out of the territory, we don't have to report on any new stories here in the U.S. No, hopefully that is the case as things start to cool off here. But speaking of cooling off, the markets definitely cooled off a little bit in the overnights here. Tanner, what do you say we hop in? Let's get to it. Well, certainly saw some cooling off, as I mentioned there, in the corn and wheat pits in the overnight here, but soybeans continue to push higher. March corn down three and a half cents in the overnight will open bell here at 667. New crop corn will open at 602 and a half, down four and a quarter cent in the overnight. In the March soybean contract, they pushed seven and a quarter cent higher in the overnight to open at $14.99 and a half, right below that $15 mark of resistance. And the soybean pits here will open four and a half cents higher in the November contract at $14.01 and a half. Chicago hard red winter wheat in the March contract 
opens eight pennies lower here at 767 and a half and March hard red winter wheat will open 10 and a quarter cent lower at 859. Livestock yesterday also saw mostly red across the screen as the February live cattle contract shed a dollar 05 and will open this morning at a buck 5785. January, excuse me, March feeders will open at a dollar 8477 and a half down a dollar 45 yesterday and February lean hogs opening bell here will tick at 8507 down $2.62.5 yesterday at the closing bell tanner. Now let's kick it over to our conversation today. We're super excited to talk to Ben Peterson, who's got a lot of irons in the fire. So let's just kick it over to him to introduce himself. Well, we're super excited today to chat with Ben Peterson, who you might be following along with on social media. Lake Mills, Iowa is where his Twitter tag is posted, but also owner of Sprout Ag and Vital Grains. Ben, we're really excited to have you on today. We appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast, even while you're trucking today. So thanks so much. Well, good morning, Delaney. Pleasure to be with you as well. So Ben, I uh, just happened to be scrolling through Twitter one day and ran into your profile and just was poking around and it looks like you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff there. Let's maybe start on your farming background with Vital Grains. Is this your family farm and how did you get it to turn into more of a business? You guys have a website. It's pretty, pretty advanced, I would say for most farms. Well, I appreciate that. So um, yeah, we are a third generation farm uh, up here in Lake Mills, Iowa, corn, soybeans, uh, I came back to the farm in 2001 and um, joined my dad, who's now starting to slowly phase out. And uh, so that's me and my wife taking over, essentially, Uh, although my wife currently takes care of the kids and has got a part time job, not really an employee on the farm so far. And and she would tell she would say that that's for good reason uh, for marital health and so forth. We're making it work. Uh, I've got three great full-time employees, so we got plenty of help that way. Um, and so Vital Grains came about because I started strip tilling back in 2001. And no, excuse me, that was too early. Uh, I started strip tilling back in 2012. And I started because I liked the idea of banning nutrients I like uh, wanted to get efficiency in that way, maybe some fuel efficiency, and it just opened up a whole new world for me. I saw our soils getting healthier. I saw uh, our soils not not being just a muddy quicksand mess when we got a little rain and we got out there with some heavy equipment. We we would no longer rut up the soil, and marginal soils became more productive. The the more we just were as minimally invasive as possible with them, and it just it kind of inspired me. I'm like, I, I saw that we're doing something meaningful with soil and looked around and, you know, a little, you can get, a, you can get a little, or at least I did frustrated with just selling for commodity prices. And you, you talk to our guys that are raising organic and no knock at all against organic farmers. Those guys work hard uh, and good for them for getting that premium. But I thought, you know, that's not really the way I want to go. I wish I could get a premium. I wish I could tell the story of, how I guess it's come to be known as regenerative. And I guess I embrace that term, you know, how meaningful regenerative agriculture can be to, to groundwater, to soil conservation, uh, to a, just a whole host of things. And I would argue competitively still with organic. And that's what I tried to do with vital grains. And it was, 
kind of a big mission to take on. I, I did, initially I, I thought I, I need to shake up the commodity market. I mean, big ideas, big dreams, just not realizing how huge it was. Uh, you know, and this is before carbon markets and regenerative credits and all this. And so it, I just had this idea that, well, Poet or Gavilon should pay me X amount of cents more because there's some environmental good here. Where do you start with that when you're just one farmer? So instead of just kind of pivoted to a way to identify ourselves, which isn't just last name farm, which everybody kind of does. And that's awesome. You know, family's a big part of farming and I, I love the heritage and legacy of it. And that's something I like about our farm too. I just thought I needed to convey the message about what we're doing and what we value a little bit more accurately. And I don't know, maybe the generation after me, I've got four kids. Hopefully one of them wants to take it on, but if not, now I've got a business that doesn't have my name slapped, stamped on it, and maybe can pass that along and give it to somebody else that's got some passion for it. So that's a really long-winded answer of how I came to name our farm Vital Grains. And I'd say the most effective thing about it now is it uh, communicates to landowners what we're doing beyond just, I guess, your uh, your average your average farmer, average practices. However, strip tilling is especially is growing in adoption. But it's just offered us some value beyond, okay, he's just another farmer renting my land. This is cool. He's taking care of it, making it better than than when he was than before he was there. And that's been really fun to uh to communicate that to people that own land and also have a legacy to protect. So I'm curious, has Vital Grains been able to command or request a higher price? Has it been successful, the philosophy? You don't know. And I think that's, it's fairly obvious why I get, you know, <clears throat> billions and billions and billions with a B bushels of corn on the market every year. It's hard to segregate out the several hundred thousand we, that we raise and say, well, this is special and so forth. And so the idea kind of came about, well, I mean, it's just bushels into the, mar- into the commodity market. It's displacing some bushels that would not otherwise be re- regenerative. And I've, uh, I talked to, uh, I've been working with Farmers Business Network for several years, almost since their inception uh, shortly after, and, you know, brought the idea to them to had some really good discussions with some smart people there. And they're, they're running down that path. And it's not, I don't take credit for that at all. Uh, hopefully I help, I helped them out with that, but in talking with them and I just talked to them a farmer to farmer in Omaha about it. And it, it, it's still a challenge. It's still a real challenge. What metrics are we actually looking at? What, what are we pricing? What, what can end user, what do end users actually get out of this? But I think we're heading in the right direction. So short answer, no, we haven't, but the success has been communicating what we're doing in an effective way with uh, with landowners and the public. And as if you weren't busy enough managing all of that, you also have this other business, uh, Sprout Ag Enterprises, which it looks like you guys do some, a lot of different things, custom application, a lot of yield and analytics, precision planning. How did that business get started? Yeah, so uh, there was back farming and dad always raised hogs growing up. So I, he was pharaoh to finish when I was a kid. So I got to help castrate pigs, wean pigs, uh, sword pigs, you name it. Uh, not, not my passion at all, uh, hog farming. So I, and dad kept telling me, well, you need a, you need to do something else besides crop farming. You're not going to make it just crop farming. Yeah. And he was probably right. In 2001, I sold my first corn crop for a buck 80 beans for four bucks. Now, granted the inputs were a lot lower. Um, 
but it wasn't as profitable and I didn't have as much land to farm back then. So I knew I was like precision ag. I knew I liked, uh, I like messing with that in our farm, you know, uh, trying to be early adopters, auto steer, yield mapping, things like that. And eventually got some more ground and decided I needed a planner of my own and precision planning caught my eye. I bought a system uh, from a guy that was a little ways away because that was the only guy that could explain it to me. And he kind of come sold it to me, said, well, can you install it yourself? Sure. So I installed it myself, comes up to inspect it and make sure I did everything right. Thought I did a half-assed decent job and said, hey, you know what? Maybe you should be a dealer. Called in and recommended my name. And it's it's been a fun ride. Uh, you know, Precision Planning didn't have Delta Force or it, Delta Force hadn't been released yet. So it was just like an Air Force roll flow, it kind of a more rudimentary product. And now, of course, your product line is vast and complex and offers a lot of value. So that precision planning is definitely our bread and butter. And it's just grown from there. Like you mentioned, we do some custom Y dropping uh, for some really good customers around us. Uh, 360 Yield Center products we sell. And Newly, what we're getting into is this company called Bright Yeti, uh, who I got connected with through a mutual acquaintance. And they're just doing some off-the-charts, exciting, out-of-the-box stuff that has just kind of got me, brought new life into my thoughts and feelings about what agriculture has to offer in the future of it. Yeah, it's really neat to see looking at your website, sproutag.com, all of the different things that you're involved in there. But I'm curious as you, I know we're a little ways away still from spring planting and spring application, but what do you expect to see this spring, Ben, as far as parts and planter availability? Because we certainly have seen some supply chain challenges. Uh, you could say that. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a challenge. And I guess it kind of gets to the heart of me too is, running a farm and running a business that's grown like Sprout has and the farm has grown. It's a lot, but I, I just love the challenge. And, uh, but there's a limit, right, Delaney? Because this is, these, the supply chain stuff has been really, really challenging. I think Precision Planning's done a very, very commendable job getting through this, uh, shuffling deck chairs around. I, I mean, that doesn't sound good. It sounds like you're on a sinking boat. Uh, so maybe that's a bad analogy, but uh, making sure that all our bases are covered, uh, cutting one little piece of something, if it means getting guys product when they want it, if it's 95% functional uh, and not going crazy with price increases. So the challenges have been immense. A lot of late installs, uh, you know, some sales I had, I've had to turn down. But I've been really happy how our company has, has responded, how Sprout Ag has responded. And uh, it's, if anything, it's really shown who you want in a foxhole with you, whether it's a company you're affiliated with and working with uh, and employees and so forth. Nothing, nothing kind of reveals that like challenging times. So yeah, there's been negatives for sure, but we're definitely looking to take away positives. Absolutely. So with that being said, what positives or what things coming down the pipeline in 2023 have you really excited? So new products or new challenges or what are we looking for there? Yeah. Anything that you're looking forward to in 2023? Because I know we've had a couple of really good years of commodity cycles. Obviously, we've had some high input costs and some supply chain challenges. What do you expect 2023 to look like? Boy, uh, 
I mean, the outlook is great right now, commodity prices being what they are. Uh, of course, inputs have followed them up a little bit, which is normal. We've seen this. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Bright Yeti quickly uh, because that it's it's just a really exciting thing uh, for us and me personally to be involved with on the ground floor. And I think it's something that's going to blow big, blow up big. Uh, so it's the, the founders of former NASA engineer who... Long story short, was working on the Orion manned space mission to Mars. He has a passion from growing up and not having enough to eat. He has a passion around agriculture. So instead of being a part of the team that puts the first human being on Mars, which I kind of geek out about that stuff, I think that would have been awesome. He has chosen to get into agriculture and use his considerable talents to affect that and how he's affecting it is through electromagnetics or more precisely a new term that I think everybody's going to get real familiar with electrophysiology. And so when you hear that term, it's a term that has not been used in agriculture yet, but it's been in medicine, for example, MRIs, uh, there's some uh, electromagnetic therapies for uh uh, you know, muscles and so forth for uh, after rehabbing, after injuries, whereas we're affecting right now seeds on a molecular level, treating them, getting them primed for germination. And so far, the results have been pretty fantastic. Their yield trials have shown 13 to 17 bushels, independent third-party testing on corn. And it's just the beginning, looking at, at treating different crops, soybeans definitely among them. This technology is at a point where a Model T was a thousand cc engine. Uh, you can buy a like a Ducati motorcycle, crotch rocket, so to speak, that can do zero to 200 miles per hour in a in a short amount of time. Also, has a thousand cc engine. This technology is at the point where the Model T was with a thousand cc engine, putting out half a horse. And it's headed to that 200 horsepower eventually. And that's coming directly from Jacob Cordova, that's founder and former NASA engineer. So it, that's, it's really got me on fire lately. And I'm excited about the potential it holds. Yeah, that's really exciting. Really interesting stuff coming down the pipeline. And certainly been fun chatting with you this morning, Ben. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But we've touched on a couple of your businesses. You're pretty active on Twitter, especially it looks like here. So before we let you go, share with us your Twitter handles for all of those businesses as well as yourself. Yeah, sure. So my uh, my primary personal Twitter account is just Ben underscore C underscore Peterson. Uh, I, I go by the sprout there. And I'm currently pivoting out of uh, my COVID frustrations and tweeting about that. Um, it's finally nice to turn a corner from that, to be honest with you, and, and just get back to my roots, uh, getting back involved with the business business and industry I love. I uh, also have Vital Grains. I think it's just at Vital Grains and uh, at Sprout Ag for uh, my businesses there. So um, definitely want, want to re-engage with that. I also have a Facebook uh, page for Sprout Ag. Um, definitely want to re-engage with people and the future is bright. The future is bright. Thank you. We appreciate that as we head into 2023 here, Ben. But thanks again for joining us on the podcast today. Certainly appreciate it. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
Well, it's always fun, Delaney, to continue to catch up with our social media connections. Listeners, remember, you can find us all over social media as well and engage, and maybe you yourself could be a guest on our podcast episode. That would certainly be fun, Tanner. We'd love to have you on the podcast in 2023. So shoot us a message on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Ag News Daily. Tanner, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let the people go. Let's let the people go.